here with uh, Father Timothy Gallagher. He is Oblate of the Virgin Mary and the uh, spirituality teacher at the seminary at St. John Vianney at, uh, in Denver. So I was hoping to talk to you, Father, about uh, Ignatian spirituality, and maybe we could just start about prayer, like the method of prayer that he taught his men to do. Well, when we speak of Ignatian spirituality and um, Ignatian prayer or Ignatian discernment, what we're really saying is this. Ignatius never really created anything. What he did do in a remarkably effective way was to absorb the tradition, the spiritual tradition, which goes back you know, many centuries before him and the famous writers that we know, and to express it in such a clear and practical and usable way that his expression tends to dominate the tradition afterward in things especially like discernment and in many ways in prayer as well. So when we speak about Ignatian prayer, there are many forms of Ignatian prayer, uh, but I suppose we mean most basically Ignatian prayer with scripture. And that takes two forms. If we enter into the scripture reflectively, so we, we use the reasoning capacity that God has given us to enter more deeply into the scripture, then that's what Ignatius calls meditation. So for example, if one of us is praying with, uh, let's say the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And pauses having read those words just to explore them a little bit. Well, why is it that poverty is so blessed? Why is this the first of the Beatitudes? Obviously, there seems to be something of great importance here. And I note that Jesus doesn't just say the poor, but the poor in spirit. So clearly, he's speaking about more than just a material fact, but speaking about an attitude of the heart and a whole stance of dependence on God and simplicity in the way we live. And why is it that this poverty in spirit precisely gives entrance into the kingdom. And we could go on like this, but that would be just a, a brief illustration of what Ignatius would mean by meditation. And you can see this is just a tradition. When we use the reasoning capacity that God has given us to enter more deeply into God's word, allowing God in a personal way to speak it to our own hearts, and then our hearts respond, Lord, help me to live that way. Lord, I need more of that in my life. I love what I'm seeing. Help me show me the way, and so on. The other way of praying with scripture, which Ignatius um, also highlights, and which is there in the tradition, but which may be a little less familiar to many, is what he calls contemplation. And I'll put an adjective in front of it to be clear. Uh, for Ignatius, this is imagine, imaginative contemplation, which is different than the infused contemplation that John of the Cross for example, speaks about. And in imaginative contemplation, what we do is to use the imaginative capacity that God has given us, the imagination, as a point of entry into the richness of God's word. So if I'm praying, for example, with the calming of the storm at sea, and let's say as I begin that prayer, I see Jesus at the end of this day, as night has fallen by the, the shore of the lake, and he's tired, it's been an intense day of healings and teachings, the crowd is dispersing, amazed at what's happened, quiet is descending. And he turns to the disciples and said, 
that is put out across the lake. And I see the disciples get into the boat, get it ready, Jesus take his place in the boat, probably fairly quickly, simply, understandably fall asleep. And they set out from the shore. And then as we continue to, it's like I walk into the movie of the, of the event and I watch it unfold with the imaginative power that God has given me. And as I do that again, God can speak that word to my heart. As I see the terror of the disciples when they're afraid that they're going to be lost, Jesus seems to be unheeding, he's simply sleeping. And that touches experiences in our lives, you know, where we felt that, all of us at various times probably. Um, Why are you afraid, men of little faith? And then his power effortlessly to calm the storm. In this case, the same thing is happening whether through the reasoning faculty that I engage in meditating on the word or the imaginative faculty capacity that I engage in contemplating a gospel event. In both cases, what I'm doing is opening myself to allow God's word to touch my heart and then my heart responds by embracing that word or in petition or in the various ways in which I move. So there are other Ignatian forms of prayer, but I suppose those might be the two most basic. Sometimes, something I've struggled with, sometimes trying to use the imagination is, I worry about like, how do I really know what it was like? You know, I see like a, a movie about the scripture, about the Bible, and and I'll kind of find what I think, I disagree with stuff, the way they do stuff, show stuff. And I get hung up on that part of it that I don't really know what it was. I don't really know what they looked like, how they dressed, or what the landscape was. Uh, but that's obviously not the point to get that right. But how do you, do people struggle with that? People you work with, maybe the seminarians? Uh. I think two things we can keep in mind about that. I mean, it's an important question. I'm glad you've raised it because other people will have that question as well. Just as all of us share a common humanity, but each of us um, is very individual in the humanity that we have, both physically and also, I'd say, just on the natural level of our the way we think, um, the memory, and, and so on, the different faculties that we have, the same thing is true of our imaginations. We all have one, but we have very different kinds of imaginations. Some people can imagine things in great detail. Others see things in less detail in a more global way. Some people hear conversations very easily in their imagination. Others perhaps a little less so. So this is the first point. Each of us is going to pray with the imagination in a way that is like others but also individual. And we can be very much at peace and at home with that. We pray with the imagination that God has given us to have. And then the second thing is perhaps uh, more directly to the uh, issue that you've raised. We all have a certain patrimony of images around the Holy Land and the places where Jesus lived, in part, as you say, from movies that we've seen, maybe documentaries, um, photographs that we've seen. Of course, there's so many resources online nowadays. And I'd say also just from our experience in life. We have a sense of what it means for people to be together, walking together and talking and uh, what sharing a meal means and those kinds of things. And that's really enough. Now, if we educate our body of images further, it's certainly going to help. If we consciously um, 
watch documentaries on if we can even go to the Holy Land, obviously, which would be the best of all things. Uh, all of that's going to provide further detail. But none of us needs to wait for that to happen in order to engage the imagination. We know enough, and the scripture guides our imagining. And that's all the Holy Spirit needs. You know, one thing I wonder about, too, is we speak of Jesus. He's without sin. He's a perfect humanity. Um, you know, it's hard to imagine, does he tell jokes? Does he <laughs> tease people? Does he? Uh, do you think about those things like, uh, what is a, a perfect man? How does he interact with others? And is it always kind of, you think of like the King of Kings from the 1930s or something. You know, he's very exalted, very regal kind of standoffish you think of like a 70s Zeffirelli Jesus you know <laughs> it's a little bit closer uh, how do you how do you imagine him well the scripture tells us that he was a man like us in all things except sin or we obviously exclude sin but that's the only thing we exclude humor tiredness delight in conversation that brings friends together uh, frustration when uh, people are stubborn and hypocritical and resistant and so on, tiredness, and on and on and on, uh, the love of his mother. Um, everything that we know as human beings, he knew and experienced as a human being. And so I think we need to see him that way, as one who really is a man like us in all things but sin. Most deeply, and you know, you ask the question in, in a personal way, so I'll answer it personally. Um, Ignatius invites us as we begin our time of prayer to begin it by considering, he says, how God our Lord looks upon me. Which we can translate into biblical terms because as John says, no one has ever seen God. How do I know what I see in the eyes of God as he looks upon me? Well, that same verse continues the only son who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So how do I know what I see in the eyes of God as he gazes upon me? I can rephrase that in this way. What did the people who met Jesus in the Gospels see in his eyes when they met him? Obviously, whatever they saw fascinated them. Uh, they left food, homes, everything just to be with him. Uh, they hung on his words. They didn't want to leave him. Uh, lives were changed just by meeting him once and hearing him speak. For me, all of that's summarized in Mark 10, 21, I believe the verse is, when this man meets Jesus and the gospel tells us that Jesus, looking upon him, loved him. If we have time for a personal anecdote, I'll, I'll, I'll add one. I did my seminary years over in Rome, and this was in the 70s. And Pope Paul, blessed Paul VI now, was uh, the Pope at the time. And uh, three years before he died, I and my classmates, we served the Assumption Day Mass in St. Peter's. Now, I'm tall, so they, they made me the cross-bearer. Um, when you're cross-bearer, you, you don't get to get too close to the Pope. So the way they did it was, if you were cross-bearer, you were one of those who brought up the gifts at the offertory. So at that point, you did get very close to the Pope. Two by two, you uh, carrying whatever it might be, a chalice or a cruet, you would kneel before the Holy Father, seated there just before the altar, and he would reach down, touch the gifts, bless them, 
give you a blessing, and then you'd get up and go. So you you knelt there maybe 10 seconds, uh, perhaps at the most. But I have never, ever seen in human eyes, still to this day, the love that I saw in his eyes. Uh, You instantly felt as though you were friends, you'd known each other a long time, you just wanted to stay there. And that moment for me, that's how I think of Jesus. Uh, That's a window for me into what people saw when their eyes met Jesus' eyes and what so captivated and fascinated them. That's how I think of Jesus. And uh, as God gives me grace when I pray in these ways that we're describing, that's how I begin, and that sets a tone for the prayer. And what would you recommend to somebody in spending time in meditation? Um, Like, what is a, a good period of time that you find? The answer to that question has to be uh, seen through the various vocations that we have and the different responsibilities and duties of our state of life. So the answer to that question, I'll, I'll give some numbers in a minute, but first I want to get the principle. The answer to that question will be different for the mother of four small children, for the same mother 25 years later when uh, her children are all have all left home and are living on their own, uh, for one who is single, for a priest, for a religious, and so on. So my counsel would, well, I, to give, be concrete about it, for the mother with the uh, four children, maybe 10 minutes might be the right amount for her. For another 15, 20, half an hour, 45 minutes, an hour, Ignatius in the exercises, when a person has complete freedom to pray, has the person pray for an hour and not more than that uh, when a person is praying with scripture in this way because the person is going to be doing it repeatedly in the retreat. And so he, uh, he limits it to an hour, which I, and I think there's a wisdom in that, generally speaking. Um, so my counsel is, if a person is not sure how much time to give to this prayer, and wants to, that's the key. I mean, if God has given that desire, then there's a beautiful grace at work in this. Then I would counsel starting with less rather than more. Start with what you know you can sustain. If you can only sustain a half hour when everything is going well, when the children are not ill, when there's no overtime, husband doesn't have overtime, and so on, um, or, or um, then don't try to start with a half hour. Start with 15 minutes or 10, or 20, whatever we know we can manage. Because it's very easy to add more with time as we find that our hearts desire more and we can do more. And that's better than setting the bar too high initially and finding it unsustainable. That's kind of discouraging. So start with what you know you can do and then let the Spirit lead. Now, on an Ignatian retreat, could you break it down a little bit for us like other general sections to it and what's kind of the heart, the essence of the retreat? The Ignatian retreat can be made for, I'd say, one of two purposes. One is, and this would be the original purpose, uh, primary purpose, and that is I'm facing a discernment. I have to discern God's will in some significant choice in my life, maybe a vocational choice or career significant things for the family. And I am seeking light from the Lord on this discernment. A second reason for which a person could make the retreat would be more renewal, 
just within an existing. And so there's no major choice to be made now, but we seek renewal and to live more deeply and respond more fully to the Lord within the existing set of conditions to which God has called us so that our prayer becomes alive, is, is renewed and refreshed. Uh, maybe we see ways within the vocation to which we're called where we can live that more richly and more fully. Around those, that purpose, the stages are these. Renew the basic reason why God put us in this life. Because if we're seeking to grow, seeking to deepen, we need to know what the big picture is. We have been loved by the Lord into life created to love, praise, reverence, and serve, God Ignatius says, in this life, and then to rejoice eternally with him. That's so key to see that today because it's not there in the culture anymore, and it's the reason why we're in this world. Once that big picture is renewed, then we ask the Lord's grace to remove the obstacles, any sins or failings that might weaken our adherence to the Lord. And so there's a series of, there's some time for prayer. Oftentimes the sacrament of reconciliation will be part of that. Then once our hearts are, are just that much more free now, then we plunge into the life of Jesus in prayer. And that's when this is the time when we're open to hear where the Spirit is leading us more deeply, whether it's in a discernment or just more deeply into our existing calling. As that has clarified in the final stages by praying with the passion and, and then the resurrection of Jesus, we seek a strengthening to live that as we return to our lives. And so that could be, it's usually like a, a 30 day retreat or it could be over the course of a week, say? It depends again on the amount of time that a person can give to it. If a person can do it and can go off to a retreat house for a full 30 days, then that's obviously a wonderful way to make the retreat. If a person, uh, normally people might do that. If they do that, it'd be once in a lifetime. Rarely it might be twice. So obviously if a person can get a full 30 days in a retreat house, that's a, a wonderful way to make the retreat. Um, but normally that would be something a person might, if a person does it in a lifetime, most likely it's done once in a lifetime. And then uh, other forms are much more common actually. So a person who might be able to get seven or eight days, um, and people sometimes do this annually if they can get that kind of time, three, five days, one day, depending on whatever amount of time a person can get, a person will do as much of this process as, um, as can be fit into that time. If a person has, I'd say six, seven, eight days, you can do a lot of it. And many people do it that way, and it's very fruitful. Now, there is another option, because there will be people who can't ever really get away from home just for reasons of work or family or whatever responsibilities. And they can make the retreat if they can set aside an hour a day. And what a person might do in eight days or in 30 days in a concentrated form, they do over a period of some months praying for an hour a day uh, according to the uh, itinerary of the spiritual exercises and meeting periodically with a spiritual director who guides the process. And that's a very rich way to do it as well because even though you don't have the silence and the solitude of a retreat house, what you do have is this. You pray uh, each day in, in a deep way, in an unhurried way, 
and then you take that to life. Mm -hmm. So the bond between what's happening spiritually and what's happening in your active life uh, can be very rich and it can be very transforming. So basically the spiritual exercises are accessible to anyone who really wants to pray. Mm -hmm. And all the person needs to do is find the right form that fits with that person's situation in life. What would Ignatian spirituality, what kind of advice would it have uh, for people in overcoming those obstacles, those faults, those sins in one's life? Um, my impression of St. Ignatius is he's a tough guy and you kind of determined will, effort. He would emphasize that part of it or do I have them all wrong? <laughs> Oh, I wish I had a half an hour to answer that question. No, he took a cannonball on the leg, right? <laughs> Kept fighting. No, he took a cannonball on the leg and fell, and then the rest of the defenders immediately surrendered. And what would Ignatian spirituality have to say about um, what does it teach about overcoming sins and faults and weaknesses? For Saint Ignatius, we never look at human failure or sinfulness until first we have looked at how immensely and infinitely we are loved by God. So, for example, let's take his way of having us pray the examination of conscience, or as it's often called today, the examine prayer. The first point of the examination of conscience, or examine, which often seems to get overlooked, but it's right there if you look at the way Ignatius gives it to us, is to look at the gifts that God has given me this day and to express gratitude for them. Which is to say, before you do anything else in looking at the day, look at the most important and deepest truth of the day, and that is that you were loved this day, and you were loved infinitely and providentially. And so go back over the day just to see the many concrete ways in which God has loved you. Uh, and there are so many of these. Then... Now that we know that we're loved, then we can begin to look at how we've responded to that love. And if we failed to respond, but it's so much easier to do now because the, the key thing is, and it's the key thing about our whole faith in Jesus, is that we're loved. We have a Savior. We're infinitely loved from all eternity and daily and in every moment. Uh, the image that I have sometimes would be, let's say there's a young girl who's at school, and she's done something, and we'll say it's pretty bad. Um, word gets back to her father, and she knows that her father knows and is at home waiting for her when she gets home, and she's she's nervous, she's afraid. She doesn't know how he's going to respond to this. And she walks up the drive to, well, now that she's returned home, and opens the door to the uh, front room, and there's her father. And her father doesn't say anything. What he does is that he approaches his young daughter, hugs her tightly, and says, I love you. Now she can tell him anything. And that's Ignatius, uh, which is just the gospel, really. So the first thing is to know that we're loved. And whatever helps us to know that, whether praying with appropriate passages in Scripture or reading or whatever it might be, as that grows within us, then then our hearts melt. Then we can share our weakness and struggle and sinfulness with one who loves us so deeply. And then at that point, we're ready, for, for example, to pray with appropriate passages in Scripture. 
and probably at some point to make use of the sacrament of reconciliation. And that's the way Ignatius has his go at it. Sometimes people summarize this by saying that Ignatius invites us to know ourselves as loved sinners. First loved, and then yes, sinners, but sinners who are loved. And that expands our hearts. Now, what are some of the thoughts or maybe gospel scenes you find that help people to to come to a realization of that love? Oh, they're everywhere in the gospel. Take the Samaritan woman. And here is a woman who just, it's any one of us who just keeps falling into the same failure and sinfulness. And and you don't it once, and you try to get out of it, you fall. And just any one of, we all know this experience on different levels of, I just keep falling into this. Well, that's this kind of woman. And uh, if you knew the gift of God, and something about this man she's never met before leads the conversation to a point where everything she's ever done now is in the conversation and it doesn't shame her, it doesn't destroy her, it doesn't tear her apart. You have a sense that she doesn't need to hide anything anymore and her life is remade and now she becomes an apostle bringing others to the Lord. Um, Zacchaeus you know, who is rejected by his fellow Jews, um, who knows that he has abused his position to become wealthy, um, taking advantage of his position and his own people, who knows that he is no longer considered a member of the Jewish religion, a son of Abraham, uh, and who hopes for so little. In, of all the people in the gospel, he's the one who hopes for the least. It's just to see Jesus from a distance. And of course, what happens when Jesus sets everything aside, mm. stops, their eyes meet, he calls him by name, um, wants to spend time with him, and Zacchaeus' life is remade. Um, Peter, by the lakeshore, after, um, after the resurrection, when Jesus so sensitively heals his heart through the threefold question, which heals the threefold denial. And we could keep on going, uh, uh, the woman in Luke 7 who never says a word and expresses everything with her tears, washing Jesus' feet um, with her tears, wiping them with her hair. And that, that healing of Peter's heart, it is such a moving scene. You know, he's distressed at the second question, the third question. Um, how do you see the healing taking place or the awareness growing in Peter of, his, of Jesus' love for him? You can see it by what... Jesus doesn't do, and then by what Jesus does do. What Jesus doesn't do, and he doesn't do it with us either when we become broken, sinful, weak, but sincere, you know, wanting to be different, coming to him in the hope of being able to be strengthened to be different. He doesn't uh, throw it in his face. He doesn't say, how could you? There's no accusation. He doesn't even mention it. But he knows, and Peter knows, and Peter, it must have meant so much to him to know that Jesus is finding such a sensitive and delicate way to allow his failure to be there between them and to heal it. So that what Jesus does not do is to be harsh and condemning, and as I say, verbally throwing it in his face, and only after a long and painful facing what you've done will I even begin to look at free. None of that. And what he does do is ask Peter a question that Peter can answer. 
And Peter knows that he's answering it sincerely. Do you love me? Well, yes, I love you. Of course I love you. You know that I love you. And each time by, uh, Peter does this, by allowing Peter to express that love, the failure, the denial is being healed. Now, if we think of that, that's what we're approaching when we go to the sacrament of confession, for example, or when we make the examination of conscience. Anytime we're at the penitential rite at Mass, whenever we bring our failure and our sinfulness to the Lord, that's the Lord that we approach. Then we're not afraid anymore. That's St. Therese. Even if I committed, you know how she said that it's not because I haven't committed this or that or that sin that I have confidence in the Lord. Even if I had committed all the worst sins that one could ever commit, I would have no less confidence in the Lord because I know his loving mercy. So by Peter is reminded of it by the, the three questions, the triple denial, but then it's almost like Jesus is kind of drawing it out of him. He says, you know, Lord, that I know you, I love you. Um, you think he's kind of reminding Peter as well of his love, of Peter's love for him? It's certainly true that when we put love into words, authentic, sincere words, then the love, by being expressed, it's incarnate in a certain sense verbally. We, we possess it more deeply in some way. So certainly, yes, when Peter has heard himself respond sincerely three times to the Lord, I love you, of course I love you, you, you know it, you know that I love you, then Peter's own knowledge of his love for the Lord certainly is strengthened. This is something that I marvel about in the way Jesus deals with broken lives and broken hearts. It's always so astoundingly sensitive to where the human heart is. The disciples on the way to Emmaus who are discouraged have lost hope and are leaving. And again, there's no accusation, where's your faith, there's none of that. It's just tell me, tell me what's in your heart, what things. And they find themselves pouring out the, the story of their hopes and the shattering of their hopes to this uh, stranger, we'll say with a capital S. And of course we know the sequel, how their, their lives are remade. Mm. Mary Magdalene, um, on the morning of the resurrection, who is so deeply grieving the loss of the one that she loves. And to her, it's just her name, which is what this woman needs more than anything else. I marvel as I go through the Gospels to see how how sensitively and lovingly the Lord is able to heal each heart that comes to him. And I would say um, that's, that's the real vision of forgiveness in the, in the Christian sense. Or the father in Luke 15, you know, who does, the son is just starving. He's only really thinking of food, but for whatever reason, he's taking step back toward his father. That's all the father needs and the, the rest follows, you know. All right, well, thank you so much uh, for talking with us, uh, and I uh, appreciate your wisdom there. My, my privilege, thanks. Okay.